This is Five and Nine, a podcast at the crossroads of magic, work, and economic justice. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 6. This is Anna Mina, a.k.a. Anshao, producer at Five and Nine. This is Dorothy Santos, director of magic. Wait, okay, let me do that again. Sorry. <laughs> I do love, like, your logline being just <laughs> laughing. Okay, I'm composed. This is Dorothy Santos, director of Magic at Five and Nine. This is Xiaowei Wang, creative director and director of Magic. It's been a while since the three of us have been on the podcast. We've had a, a pretty powerful season, season two. We set it up as a season of transitions, change, learn about ancestral work, the role of magic, witchcraft, grief, and so many perspectives on change and in the, the role of healers and healing in that space. And it seems like it could be cool to kind of just check in with each other too. This is the season finale, like how we're all doing, where we're at in our lives, in our professional lives. And I think we've all been through our own transitions of our own. You know, I, I often think about reflection as like different scales of time and like as a map, right? And so there's like reflecting upon this season in the context of this past year but then also the past like two years, three years, there's something funny where it feels like this year, especially, even though last year was the year everyone was like, ah, oh, burnout, everything like this year also feels like that, but maybe somehow worse. What's different for this year is like, we're all expected to be back in the world. Obviously, like, I hope people have feel the, the space to, to set boundaries when they can. The kind of cocoon that at least I was living in for, you know, 2020, 2021 just doesn't exist in the same way. It looks different now. I'm thinking about when I used to work in clinical research and learning about longitudinal trials and mm. and thinking to myself, how could a trial last so long? But then again, it's like you have money, you have resources. It's kind of going back to what Xiaowei talked about, reflection, but what's the scale of it? And I mentioned, you know, longitudinal trials because it's really hard to, unless you have documentation and you're recording the data, et cetera, et cetera. Like the only people that actually know the result of something are people that are actually intentionally looking at that thing that's being studied. And that's how I feel a little bit about the world. I think people are outside of that bubble. And I and I and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the past couple of years or the past few years, at first everyone was talking about COVID and the and the pandemic, how it is exacerbating, uh, unraveling, revealing systemic problems and issues, you know, culturally, scientifically, uh, historically. But then coming out of that and people get tired. And I'm sorry I'm using the metaphor as a clinical trial, but that's just what the first thing that came to my mind is subjects also get fatigued. And I think in a lot of ways, people have felt that. The cocoon you're talking about has has kind of felt that way. Like even in the beginning of the, the height of the pandemic, when everyone was kind of sheltering in place, I actually did experiments for myself. Like, oh, how could I do this? How long could I do this thing for a certain amount of days, you know, I remember the longest I went with like writing the same amount of words was like 90 days at the height of the pandemic, like a 90 days straight. I just wrote like a certain amount of words every day. And then all of a sudden it stopped. And I, I look back on why. And it's because I got tired. I was really tired of doing that thing. And I moved on to something else because I was in the container of my apartment. It also changed how I recalibrate or how I understand work. I love that phrase subjects becoming tired <laughs> although it's kind of terrifying and sad to think that we're all just clinical subjects for capitalism 
I think what it brings up too is like, especially this year where I feel like, you know, my personal output has been quote unquote quite low, (laughs) whatever that means. Like I've spent a lot of time just letting land be fallow. And what I'm realizing and thinking through now is what is the work in front of us in this this very significant rupture and turning point in our world, right? I think one, this idea of sedimented history, like all of us are kind of, you know, I think it was Robin D.G. Kelly who said it, but yeah, we're like these sediments throughout history, right? We're being carried down the river and we're just like depositing another layer and then there will be another layer after us. And so I've been trying to think more critically about what's the day-to-day and what my work is in relation to that. And this other thing too, where I feel like, especially reflecting on the past three years, there's this idea that, you know, oh my God, it's late capitalism. And isn't it so crazy that like crypto and like all these parties are still happening and people are still buying like $700 skincare creams or whatever. And I don't think those things are at a disjuncture. What I'm realizing now is that capitalism is very good (laughs) at building a world and it oftentimes actually can come to save itself. And that like crisis is an intrinsic part of capitalism. It's not the end of it. And I feel like I'm ending this year with really trying to think about the future and like, what are the ways that I can practice being outside of that, however temporary, and not in like a binary or oppositional way, but just trying to like be outside of that. I learned recently the word crisis Proto-Indo-European word, meaning a sieve, um, like a, a sifting. That's what it, it feels like right now. To your point, Shawe, I just stepped down from a job that I'd been at for about a decade now. And I think part of like why now I've been thinking about that, well, obviously 10 years is the marker, but also kind of what you're saying is COVID, the quiet that kind of came into our lives for those of us fortunate enough to just work from home. It created this little pause. I was like, well, the way things were, was one way, but here's this pause, here's this two-year pause where things are being sifted, explored, maybe things are different. And I feel like we're, at least for me, we're kind of stepping out of that and saying, okay, what's different now? How can things look different? Both for for me personally, I'm very intentionally pausing at the moment. I'm calling it a, a working sabbatical where I'm doing things, but I'm also not doing things. And just exploring what that means and what that looks like, recognizing it's a it's a privilege and a luxury. But given that I have this privilege, how can I go intentionally into whatever is coming next? And I feel like that crisis, that that's that sifting, that sieving, that sediment that you're talking about has been kicked up. And so now there's this opportunity for a lot of us to just kind of sit and be with that and and see what that looks like for us. You two are sounding so philosophical and wonderful. I can't compete. I'm not going to. That's not what I'm trying to do. But <laughs> it's, not <a laughs> it's not a competition. This, you know, but capitalism has conditioned us to think. No, here's the reason why I bring that up. I a few weeks ago, I participated in uh, the Tech Workers Collective and mm-hmm. uh, their teaching. I was matched up with Marceline Donaldson who was a part of the IBM, the Black Workers Alliance. One of the things that she was telling me was the relationship between race, gender, and class and how that's unraveling itself as well itself. I was a part of a wildcat strike in 2019 that started off in 2020 at UC Santa Cruz. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because, you know, UAW, which is a union that I'm a part of, and even though I'm a fellow 
And obviously my partner is also, or was a grad student at UC Santa Cruz. You know, we're still in solidarity with the strikers and people who are, you know, engaged in that type of labor and withholding. But it's a different kind of strike. It's a different kind of energy. When I was talking to Marceline, one of the things that she said was the reason why it's so difficult organizing across race, gender, and class is because when someone makes it to a certain level, they don't really want to look back. It's hard for them to do that. Um, And what I mean by that is someone who's kind of gone up in the ranks at a job, at an institution, is like, how how do you actually organize someone that's not in your quote unquote socioeconomic class? And I think in so many ways, that's what's been happening kind of with the country and the world is we're having a reckoning of that too. I think one of the other things that she brought up when I asked at the very end, what would you want people to walk away with from our conversation today in her wisdom, in her great wisdom, is she said, I wish people would get away from the better than, I need to be better than, or this type of idea of competition. You know, she didn't use the word competition, but she said, I noticed that in organizing back then, and I might not be organizing now, you know, because she's an entrepreneur. She's had a business with her with her husband for many years. The reason why she became an entrepreneur is because what she noticed in the organizing was, oh, I'm just going to build the world I want because obviously capitalism is not going to give me that. So I might as well build it and build it for other Black folks. I was watching the live stream of this day of honoring Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is very much thankfully still alive and making and writing and organizing. It was a bunch of scholars like reflecting upon Ruth Wilson Gilmore's work. And there was this great talk from Naomi Murakawa, who's this political scientist who teaches, I think, at Princeton's department of African-American studies. She was saying that there's this way in which if we think about so much of capitalism is not just regular capitalism, but it's racial capitalism and race and gender and like sexual orientation. It's the modality in which class is lived, but something like race alone cannot be the modality in which class is undone. And it reminded me actually about also something we're seeing in the world right now, which is like the rise of the BIPOC right. You know, thinking about this in the aftermath of both the election in the U.S. and then also at the same time, this kind of surge of very like union solidarity strikes, right? Trying to actually demand the different conditions for this other world that we can live in. I feel like these these two things are happening very much at the same time and actually like in relation to each other. The rise of the right is like in a backlash really to these other like movements and motions. One of the things I started doing is going scuba diving and the most dangerous time underwater is when the sediment is shifting. One of the most dangerous times at least and where nothing's clear. We don't quite know where we're going. Up is down, down is up. And really what you have to do in those situations is, well, one, be mindful, but check in with yourself and Recognize that these are stressful times. These are incredibly stressful times. You need new tools and new skill sets. You need a compass that functions a little differently. Helen Chang, who we had, we've had a, as a guest in the p- past season. They gave me a deck called the Modus 
operandi deck and i really love cartomancy so uh, sometimes it's not even just tarot or oracle i'll go to like my question decks this deck asks really difficult questions do you want to hear some of them okay let me pull what's something you'd never consider exchanging for money feel like there's so much that I wouldn't exchange for money. (laughs) My values, Mm -hmm. my time. But here's the philosophical conundrum with that is what about the work we do? I was listening to a podcast called The Ethical Rainmaker, and it talks a lot about the kind of racist roots of philanthropy in the U.S. actually. So when we say, when we answer that question of we wouldn't want to exchange our values for money, but aren't we doing that in other ways that are a little bit more... Maybe, what's the word? They're couched in something else. I'm not saying you're doing that, by the way. I'm bringing up the conundrum of the work that I think all three of us engage in, that we all need to survive, you know? I love that you brought that up because I think that's a recurring question from both the listeners of our show and then also between the three of us. I feel like this past year, more than anything, has taught me about what exchange means And I think there's ways of exchanging where it's like, it is an exchange. It's another thing to say like, well, I'm going to take your money, but I don't need to be in relationship with you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's like, that's the goal, right? Where it's like, oh, we get the monies from philanthropy or wherever, or like Twitter (laughs) or our workplaces. But we don't have to be in relation with the thing that gives Mm. us money. Are there ways of taking that money and having it move through and like allow a kind of relationship with other people or maybe a more reparative relationship or all these other different kinds of relations? And so I do feel like that question comes up where folks are like, oh, but like there is no ethical living under capitalism. Like, how can I work at this job or accept money for this person and like take the money? And it's like so binary, but I think it's actually like much more complex than that. And it's not just about that single act of refusal. Yeah. In the tarot, there, there is the coins suit, right? It's just a reminder we're made of earth. We got to live. We got to eat. Some folks I know in healing professions have this idea of energy exchange, right? That there, there are other ways to give. In Buddhism, there's this idea of dana mm-hmm. or generosity. That giving is essential, right? It, it's a way that we recognize the value that someone has brought into our life. So it's an interesting question because it's it's hard to say there's absolutely nothing. So much of how we function in society does depend on money. To live outside of that is actually in some ways very difficult to imagine, at least right now. I wanted to add to Anna's point because I think her point is a really crucial one. And it brings up this vow that you take in Buddhism of like the fifth mindfulness training and actually just pulled the book and to look at it. And it says, aware that true happiness is rooted in peace, solidity, freedom, and compassion. We are determined not to accumulate wealth while millions are hungry and dying, nor to take wealth as the aim of our life or fame, power, sensual pleasure. And I think that point that Anna's making is like, it's one thing to accumulate wealth and you're like, oh, this is a means for what are the things that I can do with it to like plug back into the greater conditions that we live in together collectively. There's another where I honestly just see people who are very wealthy and they're like, oh, I just want to make more money so that I can like buy this piece of art. (laughs) 
and to use it as a vessel for storing my wealth. And like most of their wealth actually does go towards their own material well-being. And I think that's something that I wish, yeah, to just we can all like consider and I think about every single day. So the second question, how old is your longest grudge? What are you hemorrhaging to feed it? Ones against yourself count. This deck really brings the pain. You know what I'm saying? It's like every single question I've ever pulled from this deck, I'm like, really? That's not actually what I wanted to think about, but it's good that I'm thinking about it. It's an interesting framing of the question because it includes a grudge against yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which for me is a lifelong process and journey (laughs) of um, self-acceptance. Uh, self-love. You know, in a lot of ways, I don't know. I feel like that's that's the OG grudge, at least for me. I feel like that's what so many spiritual meditative practices are about, at least the ones I'm in, just sitting with yourself, just being with yourself. I think for me, what stood out in the framing of the question, I have a particular interpretation because a grudge is obviously something that you're unwilling to let go of, which is strange because, you know, sometimes something that you're unwilling to let go of is, uh, it can also be a treasure, but a grudge is very different. A grudge is, it kind of connotes something that ought to be let go of. And then hemorrhaging, and again, I'm going back into kind of the medical use of, of the language. Hemorrhaging is when, you know, there's a profusion of like, blood, like blood is being kind of let out or it's escaping really rapidly. And so it's this kind of opposition of the first and second question, because what are you holding on to? But what is escaping while you're holding on to that thing? I mean, and of course, I'll be real, like, I do have grudges against people. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I love the honesty. I do want to just sneak in there that I have a grudge against Timothy Chalamet. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Wait, I need to hear this. What's what? going on here? Yeah. You two don't have a grudge against what, him. Well, I, what, I, for what? And, you know, like, it's one of those, like, when you, like, love something so much that you have a grudge against it, you're like, this is too good. And then he also showed up to, like, the film premiere everyone was like timothy chalamet so androgynous you know all these things and i'm just like why couldn't timothy chalamet just have come like a few generations mm. earlier? oh i see mm, the I so see. it's like it's kind of like it's not a grudge it's kind of like damn you okay yeah i get that i get that yeah but good for good for him you know just also continuing this questioning of gender in our society in a very like mainstream arena good for him <laughs> Okay, okay. So let's 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 move on to the last and third question. This one I will probably get emotional. What's something you needed when you were younger? How did or does that need impact your life? I was I was talking with someone um younger than me who's also queer who called me an elder mm. and and they were like, "Yeah, you know, I I just I don't have many elders around me." And so one I was like, "Wait, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. I'm, I'm not an elder." <laughs> yeah. But then when I sat with that, I was like, I didn't have elders Mm. because the generation before us was either wiped away by disease or oppression or silencing, all kinds of things, right? Obviously, there were very important LGBTQ like figures, but in broad society, I think visibility was very low um, and it's only been changing in the past few years. I think that's affected how I think about my writing, my coaching practice, my leadership practice, how to really embody what I was looking for when I was younger. Um, and what did I need? Who was the person I, I could have turned to? 
Yeah, I feel like for me, a lot of the things I feel like really both for better or for worse dictate my day-to-day life and is a result of things that I needed in childhood was a sense of safety. And I think this manifests, I have admittedly slightly hoardery behavior (laughs) around things like that include food, like an overabundance of food. I don't know, some days I won't like really, or I won't really leave the house for like multiple days. But I think just this need for like physical environmental safety and I often have to be aware of when perceived threats are like actually just perceived threats and when they're actual feelings of lacking safety I said this was this was an emotional question and I I think I wanted to have this kind of be the the wrap-up for the for the deck because you always have to go back you know at some point in your life whether you like it or not You know, it's funny when people, when I have been asked, why did I want to go back to grad school? Why do you want to be a teacher? I always say, oh, I want to be what I needed. And what I mean by that is I don't want someone to feel that they have to look far. I think the concrete kind of one-liner answer of what I needed was I just wanted my parents to understand. And not even necessarily me, I'm talking just broadly, instead of having to just survive. I feel like I have a little bit of that now. I don't think my dad ever understood me because, you know, my father had me when he was 60. So he was just going to connect with me the best way that he knew how and with the tools that he had. And I think that's something that I, I reflect on when I think about my mom, that, you know, she does bear and carry and possess all this wisdom in her bones and in her body, in her mind. But I've never been able to tap into that side of her that was willing to be vulnerable and tell me what she went through. And I feel like that is what I needed. I think arguably people could say, oh, you're just making art from your mom's like pain or from her migration story, immigration story. And yeah, I am because I think it's important and I have her consent. But that was something I feel like regardless of an art practice, regardless of writing poetry or experimental prose, that's what I needed. And the way it's impacted me is I have this greater understanding I also feel a greater level of patience that I didn't have when I was younger. And I think that's something that I feel I've learned a lot from as I've, you know, aged and matured. And even as I read tarot for other people, there's this kind of magical thing that happens when you actively listen to other people's pain and anguish and tribulations. It's not because you're, it's not about sensationalizing it. It's about understanding this is such a casual chill deck. It's like a perfect beachside. Yeah, I was about to say. It's like when you do the work icebreaker and someone's like, you know, work icebreakers on Zoom. It's like, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then someone's like, today's icebreaker is, what's one childhood memory you have? And you're just like, did you not Call them glacier breakers. Oh my god, (laughs) that is so good, (laughs) Anna. Oh my god, that is so good. Oh my god, someone needs to write like an article (laughs) for BuzzFeed about glacier breakers now. So we're closing out this season. Um, transitions, and we are transitioning ourselves at five and nine into some of our paid offerings, some of our classes, how-tos. Our audience has been asking about workshops, things they can learn, 
We have a paid subscription. The podcast is always free, but with a paid subscription, we're starting the how-tos. We're starting some inspirational kind of lessons and topics based on the really deep discussions we've been having this season. And in 2023, we're really excited to be offering a class with the Shipment Agency on writing and tarot. The details are still coming together, but we're we're just really excited to be able to offer these practices because the three of us are all writers and we're all tarot practitioners. And so putting them together, we think can hopefully offer some benefit for writers, um, especially writers working through difficult projects or narratives or research that they're doing. At least for me personally, I found tarot um, incredibly useful in my writing practice and in my my kind of self-discovery practice. Well, I am working on the Cyborg's Prosody, which is a project I've been working on for quite some time now for the past year. And it has to do with my mother's immigration story and loss or diminishing of mother tongue. It's been probably one of the most vulnerable, at times heart-wrenching works that I've written. It is very much experimental prose, electronic literature. It's interactive nonfiction. So what is it? Interactive creative nonfiction. I think some people, when they get it, they really get it. And some people, I've had to grapple with people saying that it is like, oh, how are you? How do you not see this as culturally appropriative? And I said, well, I'm okay. I'm Filipino American. (laughs) That's one. (laughs) Number two, I, I grew up in a Filipino household that was multilingual. And I've had to really confront so many different questions that talk about one's comfort. And I remember one of my friends, actually Kai, who we've had on the show And he reminded me when I described to him some of the stuff that I was going through with a cyborg's prosody and the creation of this, of this game. And I'm calling it a game because it is a game. And he said, well, it's not about other people's comfort, is it? Like, that's the point. And sometimes you write because you have to say the uncomfortable things that nobody wants to say, or that people are unwilling to listen to, or that people just need to hear again, because someone else has said it. You know, even rereading James Baldwin's work. I'm like, damn, it has been decades. We haven't actually honored Uncle Jimmy. (laughs) Like we're still in the same place that he said that we were when we were in decades ago. I like to think of cultural ancestors too. I think that's kind of what's been going on in my own writing is how do I, how do I honor my mom, you know, obtain her consent, which I have. It's also challenging and tough because I've written stuff that she she hasn't heard yet. And it's based off of you know, countless conversations with her. I think if I was to associate an archetype to it, I always go back to Xiaowei, what you said about the hanged one. How do we flip ourselves? How do we not succumb to kind of the attachments of the world and suspend, you know, belief, but also have our heart above the head so that we are making work and doing work that is from a place of of an, an, an earnest effort to do good in the world and to be wise not, not necessarily to be right. I've kind of leaned into the affordances that I've been given, such as an artist residency, such as, you know, I get to work with Duolingo, which is really weird. <laughs> I get to be a guest scholar there to talk about, you know, computational linguistics and how people learn language. And that's not something that I would have ever imagined like three, five, even 10 years ago. Yeah, that's that's kind of like what I'm trying to remember, that I do belong. I'm meant to be here. I'm doing the goddess's work. I hope so. <laughs> I've been writing about art again. I last wrote for Hyperallergic, the uh, online art blogazine magazine. I mean, like 2014 was when I was most active and I'm active again. And it's been pretty amazing. 
can say for me as a writer, I, I recently drew for myself the page of cups as part of my writing practice. I'm finding myself writing differently than I did uh, in 2014. For obvious reasons, I've changed, right? It's almost been 10 years. But specifically, the thing that I at least am trying to tap into more is those emotions. I'm trying to explore this kind of emotional curiosity or curiosity about emotions, I should say, through my writing. Um, and through writing about art, I, I'm much more drawn now to social practice art, to art that touches on magic and mysticism that has a lot of heart to it. And as such, I am experiencing art differently as well. I, allowing my heart to break a little more, allowing myself to emote and feel those emotions within the works in a way that I think is both my own personal journey, but also I think in the past 10 years, there's also been this discourse on what even it even means to be objective in journalism or in arts writing. So I think I'm also just within this kind of broader shift and more comfortable exploring the emotions or feelings within an artwork because that's what art is, right? So I'm excited to do that. And, and I sometimes use tarot to check in on kind of my experiences there, but also literally I'm writing about tarot now and its role in art and, and especially how the surrealists have used it and have, have played with it and the imagery. And so so I've, I've just been enjoying that, those, those deep dives. Oh my goodness. I am so excited to read, listen, look at both of your projects and writings and yeah, just everything for the next year that you two are working on. I think for myself personally, I feel like I don't have quite yet the reflection <laughs> aspect. Like I'm still, I'm like in it, so I don't know what it looks like. <laughs> but one thing I've been really using tarot a lot in is for this next book that I'm working on, and parts of it are historical. I'm not a historian at all, but using the tarot actually to do readings for these people who are now long gone physically in body form, but not in the other forms that they still exist in. And so using tarot to do readings for them as a way of conjuring. And I've been approaching like the historical writing similar to what you just said Anna as like not this kind of ob objective search for truth but to really just view this as like a conjuring and channeling and it's dovetailing with this other piece that I've been working on that I've talked to both of you about called witch fever which I think will start to manifest in the world slowly over the next year but it's really centered around think in this speculative botany and so much of it is also based on historical research into colonial plantations in the 1900s and kind of the botanical image and this idea of the impossible image right images that exist but actually physically can't exist so all of which to say i feel like tarot is this really actually it's also a really helpful way of me as you can <laughs> tell my brain's kind of like goes in a big mess and so tarot helps me like crystallize and settle things a little bit more wow we're amazing <laughs> don't you want to take our class <laughs> don't you want to subscribe to a paid subscriber to our newsletter where we can share this endless wisdom and knowledge to the collective three of us have no, I feel like we should be like, listen, we're not buying $700 skin cream. Take your money. <laughs> Dorothy will probably buy just a cooler fountain oh, yeah, for Noelle that's, that's, with your money. And Noelle yes, deserves that's, that's Noelle's exactly darkest cat. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> oh yeah, thank you. Yeah. Or as my as my partner has uh has called her Meower number one. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hi everyone. This is Anna Mina, producer at Five and Nine. We're coming to the close of season two, a season focused on transition and change. We hope the conversations this season have supported you during a time of tremendous change in the world, and in turn, we'd love to ask for your support. As so many of us try to figure out our own relationships to work, Five and Nine is trying to fill in a gap. We're connecting the conversation around work with the magic that's within all of us, while keeping at the forefront the economic justice that everyone deserves. Our team is queer and BIPOC-led, and we try to bring rich, intersecting perspectives into our conversations. We've heard from so many of you that this show has moved you in different ways, and we're grateful for that. If you've enjoyed Five and Nine, if you've learned something along the way, we invite you to support us in three ways. One, you can become a paid member at thisis5and9.com. It's just $6 per month, and it gives you access to our paid programming, which will include how-tos, journaling prompts, tarot exercises, and other resources, and we might even host an online class. Your generous support helps cover our costs, which include honorarium for our guest speakers, software subscriptions, and of course, our time. Two, you can recommend the show to others. Do you know anyone who you think might enjoy this podcast? Send them a link. Ask them to tune in. You can send them snippets of our shows on Instagram at 5 and 9 underscore podcast. And three, you can leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. Reviews help bring visibility and credibility to indie podcasts like ours and help people know what to expect when tuning in. This podcast will always be free and we hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we've enjoyed making it. All our episodes contain selections of music in the public domain and that were recorded during the time of the creation of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, the deck we used in this episode. The background music is Ain't We Got Fun, a foxtrot composed by Richard Whiting and performed by the Benson Orchestra of Chicago in 1921. We know these are challenging and sometimes frightening times. Remember to take a moment to breathe deeply, drink plenty of water, and find space for joy wherever and whenever you can. 